0: Hello, Tim Williams here. I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Thanks for choosing to listen to one of our archived episodes from our early days of launching the show. Although I love the overall content of these episodes, I will say the recording quality was not always the best as the show was still evolving and I was learning to record and edit pretty much on the fly. I believe the sound quality and editing has improved from season to season, so be sure to check out more great episodes and our more recent seasons. I hope you enjoy this episode and that it rekindles all those warm and fuzzy nostalgic feels. Once again, thank you so much for listening.
1: Get out of here, man. I got to warn you. You're doomed to stay. Go. Go.
0: I think we just met Ralph. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, and I'm your host for the 80s flick flashback podcast, where we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s, from blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what flick we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes. And even learning some behind the scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Legendary filmmaker Georges Millet is often credited with making the first ever horror movie, which was called The Haunted Castle. Horror movies have no doubt evolved since the early days, with many filmmakers now relying on cheap scares and gore to horrify audiences. The 80s, however, were a great time for horror fans with iconic franchises like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and Friday the 13th, all getting a number of sequels in the decade. It may be hard to remember, but there was a time when the name Jason Voorhees wasn't part of the horror lexicon. In 1980, director Sean S. Cunningham unleashed the original Friday the 13th, a film that would go on to define the slasher era through sequel after profitable sequel although Jason's iconic hockey mask wouldn't actually show up until the third installment in 1982. So grab your canoes, backpacks, and machetes, and come along with Ron West and I as we travel to Camp Crystal Lake to discuss the original Friday the 13th. So that's what we're doing today, and before we get really into it, I know this is kind of weird because I don't really do this, but spoiler alert, if you've never seen (laughs) the original Friday the 13th, uh this is we're gonna spoil it from right from the very beginning because i guess the first movie we've done uh i guess on this podcast where this one actually has a twist ending and if you don't know what that ending is it's probably better for you to uh not know that although you'll be very disappointed to realize by the end of the movie that jason really isn't in it so where there's no hockey mask at least so but anyway welcome ron welcome back after our phenomenal halloween 2 that we loved so much uh, two weeks ago, but uh, cool. Excited about this one because it, it releases on fr- Friday the Thirteenth. This is uh, so we went back to the original uh, Friday the Thirteenth. With this being an '80s podcast, we'll probably hit uh, a good number of them because they pretty much came out one every year from the original in 1980. But anyway, how you doing, Ron? Doing
1: doing well. Yeah, they really cranked out the Friday the Thirteenth movies, and I will say that. Of the three kind of iconic horror franchises from the 80s, which even though Halloween started in the 1970s, you know, kind of um, just continued
0: through the 80s. So Halloween, Friday the 13th, and Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, I will say this one is my least favorite of the three as far as the, the, the franchise. Right. Franchises. Uh, but the the original Friday the 13th is a classic. Like you said, it has the, the twist ending... Um, which I'll wait since you haven't actually spoiled it yet, but <laughs> such a twist ending that I remember seeing the second one and everyone in the theater thinking it was going to be some other kind of twist, that it wasn't gotcha. going to be what you thought it was okay.
1: because of the first
0: one, twist in the first one. Gotcha. I guess it would be like seeing an M. Night Shyamalan movie now and then going to see a second movie and there not being a twist ending. You're like, what? That's not what I paid for. So that makes sense. <laughs> So well, when did you see Friday the Thirteenth for the first time? Did you see this one uh, in the theater as well? Yes, yes,
1: saw so Friday the Thirteenth in the theater uh, in the, in the Bluefield, West Virginia, and uh, with with, uh, with family. And uh, this was great and very unsettling for us because we. Uh, I have two older sisters, um, or had two older sisters, one of them since passed on, but mm-hmm. uh, five and six years older than me, and uh, I had not started going to summer camp yet, but they were already going to summer camp every year, we always okay. went to 4-H camp for a week right, uh, in the summer, and so, uh, uh, this came out in 1980, so I would have been eight years old, so they would have been, you know, 13 and 14, <laughs> and so they were already going away from home to a summer camp. Right. In, in the woods in uh, in West Virginia for a week, and then watching a movie
0: where kids are being killed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, but mostly again, the teenagers are having sex. You know, if you have sex uh, in at a camp, you're you're pretty much dying. Uh, you're gonna <laughs> yeah. get slaughtered. That's one of the one of the morals of the Friday the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. Right. Uh, so. You know, that
2: was a little un- unsettling. You know, my sister's then going away to camp, and you're kind of like, you know, don't get killed. <laughs> don't, don't, don't let anyone murder you. Right, right. Um, and then when I got a little older, uh, I actually did not want to go to summer camp the first time. Okay. Uh, and it was because of Friday the 13th that oh, I didn't want to go. Sure. i was a scary kid anyway. But I didn't want to go because I had visions of,
0: I didn't know what to expect and had visions of, you know, being in the woods
1: and, and being chopped up. But, uh, of course, once I went,
0: uh, I loved it, and um, then couldn't wait to go every year. <laughs> right. Uh, so, okay, well, how long have it been since you saw it before watching it for the podcast?
1: Oh, I saw, I watched the original a um, few years back. Probably didn't really get through the entire thing. Uh, I think this one does does not hold up. No, greatly. Just no. some of the dialogue and 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 things which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah. Um. So this is one that it comes on. You kind of switch it on, watch for 15, 20 minutes, and then you go, like, Ah. All right, maybe a uh, House Hunters is on or something. We'll switch <laughs> to try something else, something else to watch. It doesn't hold. Doesn't hold as well, especially once you know the twist ending. I mean, yeah. once you know any movie's great twist ending,
0: right? It's not as uh, much fun, yeah. and you know, different back then because they weren't really giving you hints along the way that knowing that you're going to watch it multiple times that you may miss the first time. Um, yeah, definitely. Well, I did not see this in the theater. I did not see it on VHS. Like we, I think we mentioned in the last episode with Halloween too, I really didn't get into the horror genre until I was really in middle school. And most of these had, you know, well past the theater. I was, it, you know, the sequels are pretty, were pretty, uh, were pretty uh, frequent, but I think this, franchise is probably the first like for real like of the slasher movies a franchise that I saw but I don't know if I, I think it must have been the third one and it was because whatever friend of mine that was telling me about he was like oh well, you got to watch the third one because that's when you really see Jason so um going back and watching this one uh, this was kind of like a first time watch for me and then I even watched a little bit of the second one right after this one went off just to kind of see that I had I'd seen that one as well and it didn't seem familiar either. So, um, so this was a first time watch for me. And uh, yeah, and the it, second
1: one is is the one with like Jason with like the brown paper yeah. bag on his Yeah, Yeah, it's, a, it's like a, like, a like burlap a,
0: sack. Burlap sack. Yeah, exactly. Sack. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so it's it's like I said, it's definitely when you think Friday the Thirteenth, you automatic, you know, now you automatically automatically think about Jason and the hockey mask. So. To go back and watch this one, even the poster, you know, looking at the poster, it doesn't show a head, but it has that figure with the knife and you see the campers in the knife. I mean, even seeing that poster, I mean, I automatically assume that that's Jason. You just don't see, you know, the hockey mask. So, so anyway, so the big right. spoiler, if you know, hopefully you haven't made it this far, but Jason is, uh, he is not the killer of this movie. Um, it turns out to be the mom because Jason drowned in the lake. Uh, Many years before this And uh, The mother is seeking revenge Because the counselors were too busy Having sex And to save her boy Who's drowning in the lake So With her very dramatic uh, Villain monologue at the end So
1: (laughs) Yes And her soccer mom sweater
0: Yeah Well they uh, they, And a little trivia already They actually gave her extra They padded her Like she was She wore extra padding That's why she had such a heavy sweater because they oh. wanted her to look more muscular or more manly, so that, because she never, all of the kill scenes, of course, are from a point of view, or just seeing limbs, None of she did none of the actual kill scenes. Uh, she was barely there for the filming, she just did the end, you know, the final battle she had with Alice was the only part of the movie she was really there for, so.
1: Interesting. Um, well, and that would also explain why
0: she's got on a big, heavy sweater, which right. should be the middle of summer. <laughs> yeah, um, even though you can tell, like, because I was, I was putting together some pictures for the, you know, for the uh, our social media, and the shot of Alice in the lake at the end, you see, like, fall foliage on the trees, so they obviously filmed this not during the summer, so uh, even though they're preparing for summer, she so would think it'd be more like spring, but I was like, there's really some fall colors uh, on there, so... It's we'll it. interesting, and, and she wasn't the only actress that was barely there, too. I know the the, the one that was supposed to be the cook right. yeah. was, uh, was barely there as well. Well, just filmed, was just there for the day and
1: filmed her scenes mm-hmm. and, and left. Because and, uh, I know I had read the, the scenes with her and the truck driver yeah. who, who was uh, giving her ride. We're not filmed together. (laughs) You're right. Right. And so it was all these cut together scenes of them talking to each other, but they're not actually in the truck together. I thought that was pretty, pretty funny. And honestly, I didn't notice it uh, until I read that. And then I went, Oh yeah. (laughs) So they they, did a fairly good job with
0: it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump into some pre-production, how it all came, came to be, especially with this being the first one, you kind of want to hear the backstory. So uh, as I mentioned, Friday the 13th was produced and directed by Sean S Cunningham, who had previously worked with filmmaker Wes Craven on the film The Last House on the Left, which I think came out in like 74, 75. Um, Cunningham, inspired by John Carpenter's Halloween, wanted Friday the 13th to be shocking, visually stunning, and quote unquote make you jump out of your seat. Uh, wanting to distance, distance himself from The Last House on the Left, Cunningham wanted Friday the 13th to be more of a roller coaster ride. So, have you seen the original? Last House on the Left? No, they did a remake a couple years ago.
1: Uh, And I have not seen either one of
0: those. Okay, so I'm just curious as how different it was. I haven't seen either one either, so. So, the original screenplay was tentatively titled A Long Night at Camp Blood. While working on a redraft of the screenplay, Cunningham proposed the title Friday the 13th, after which Miller began redeveloping. Cunningham rushed out to place an advertisement in Variety using the Friday the 13th title... Worried that someone else owned the rights to the title and wanting to avoid potential lawsuits, Cunningham thought it would be best to find out immediately. He commissioned a New York advertising agency to develop his concept of the Friday the 13th logo, which consisted of big block letters bursting through a pane of glass. In the end, Cunningham believed there were no problems with the title, but distributor George Mansour stated, There was a movie before ours called Friday the 13th, The Orphan. It was moderately successful, but someone still threatened to sue. Uh, but eventually they were paid off because it, and it was finally resolved. So uh, and and you, there's some posters um, online when you look for the poster for Friday the 13th, they still have that big block Friday the 13th poster that he put in Variety. So it's pretty interesting that basically he was just trying to. And I, I think I read somewhere else where they were saying that uh, once once he hit Variety, he had a lot of investors or people that wanted to get in on the movie because they thought the title was something that. They knew people were going to flock to with it being such a, uh, you know, superstitious day. The screenplay was completed in mid-1979 by Victor Miller, who later went on to write for several television soap operas, including Guiding Light, One Life to Live, and All My Children. I'm sure Ron saw all those as a child. Uh. Most of them. (laughs) At the time, Miller was living in Stratford, Connecticut, near Cunningham, and the two had begun collaborating on potential film projects. Miller delighted in inventing a serial killer who turned out to be somebody's mother, a murderer whose only motivation was her love for her child. He said, I took motherhood and turned it on its head, and I think that was great fun. Mrs. Voorhees was the mother I'd always wanted, a mother who would have killed for her kids. Uh, Miller was unhappy about the filmmaker's decision to make J- Jason Voorhees the killer in the sequels. He said, Jason was dead from the very beginning. He was a victim, not the villain. And I think we talked about this um, on the Halloween 2 episode as well. The idea of Jason appearing at the end of the film was initially not used in the original script. In Miller's final draft, the film ended with Alice merely floating on the lake. Jason's appearance was actually suggested by makeup designer Tom Savini. Savini stated that the whole reason for the cliffhanger at the end was that I had just seen the movie Carrie, so he thought we needed a a chair jumper like that, and I said, let's bring in Jason. We talked about that in the last one about, you know, not really, they weren't really planning to set up a sequel. but Yeah,
1: interesting that if he had not done that and brought in uh, Jason, uh, would, would and since Jason was not originally set up as a villain, right. when they decided to do the sequel, would they have done that or would have always been some someone else connected to the camp? With yeah. Like Jason as this mythological person in the background. Yeah. And I remember watching this I, as a kid, and watching it, you know, several times mm-hmm. on VHS or whatever. You know, after you know, in the eighties, I never felt like like I always felt like it was a dream sequence, like right. she was dreaming, and it wasn't really Jason. We may have even had like an argument, debate, discussion in school one time
2: about yeah. that, About well, no, it was clearly it was Jason because she tells the paramedics what happened to the kid. Yeah. And and then people say, well, yeah, but
1: there was no kid. So clearly, right, it was it was a, a, a dream. And and the fact that they,
0: if you look closely at the, at that Jason, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they made him look, uh, you know, like a, a special needs
1: right right uh, child, which is by design. And her telling the counselors he never should have been left alone. Mm-hmm um and, and things like that like, uh, kind of uh, alluding to the fact that that um uh, that he had that he needed special attention he wasn't just right. a regular child right. very interesting that that if that you know how things play out that 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 uh i think just that special text makeup guy who is wanting to do his work is also <laughs> He's like hey let's do this guy right mean, kind of right this makeup and everything on and yeah you know um, you know, it wasn't the sub coordinator that was coming up with the <laughs> right. It was the guy who was gonna benefit
0: from it coming right. up with it. Right. Um And that's such a weird scene too, as she's just like floating there with mm-hmm. her hand just like la
1: la la yeah. la la yeah.
0: in the water. Like, yeah. what are you doing? Right. <laughs> yeah, and I I and see, even though I had not seen the movie before, I I remembered that scene, so obviously I had caught the end on TV or I think somebody might've showed me a clip as I got older. Like, Oh, you never saw that scene. Oh, you got to watch this. Or, you know, they had the VHS just show me the end. But what, but the interesting thing was, I thought that was the end, like him coming out of the water at the end. I thought that's like where the movie ended. But then for her to wake up in the hospital and have the whole dialogue to me, that kind of, it didn't make it any more scary at that point. Like I would have been more freaked out if, you know, kind of like the Halloween ending where they look for Jason's... body I mean, not Jason. They look for uh, Mike Myers' body and it's not there. And then the movie ends. Where in this one, like, something jumps out of the lake and grabs Alice. And then, you know, fade to black, directed by, you know, whatever. Uh, Would have been a little bit more scary than her waking up. Then, like you said, you're having that whole conversation. Was it a dream? Was it not a dream? Cause
1: yeah, just, just cut it off. Cut it off right there. Right. You know, I wonder if people leading up to Friday the 13th Part 2 because she woke up with the makes in the hospital, people were like, oh, that's going to be set in the hospital, just like <laughs> Halloween 2 now. Oh, gosh, yeah. In the gosh, hospital yeah. with Jason. <laughs> somebody running around trying to trying to kill Alice. Right. Uh, but I, I will I will say a little bit of... Um, I watched a little bit of the beginning of
2: Friday the 13th, too, which, and again, a spoiler there on Friday the 13th, part two, right Alice Gates
1: killed at the beginning of that movie. Right. And I remembered that. I, I remembered her in the kitchen and I remember the ice pick that she gets filled with but I could not remember what movie or what franchise it was I had this memory <laughs> of it. it was a sequel I thought it was one of the Halloween Oh, okay. actually like if gotcha. you had like, like forced me to, to bet on it mm-hmm. I would have said it was a, one of the Halloweens where he finally gets Jamie Jamie Lee Curtis right. or something that right. wakes up in the house and so when I watched the beginning of it so I was probably like that's where I remember that
0: from <laughs> um, Yeah, but anyway but going back to your point about if they had not if they had not added Jason at the end, what would the sequels have been? And you almost would have had to been, it would have been a continuation of Parents. I mean, that's really the only way you could have gone, where like, you know, the next one was there was another parent, and maybe the kid didn't drown, maybe the kid got left in the woods, or you know, some tragedy that someone's tried to cover up, but you, you really could have only done that maybe one or two more times. Yeah. Uh, you know, before it became really too too predictable. But then again, you could have do- done the
1: parents, because she had killed kids before this movie. Right. So remember, she had killed some. And so you could have done those kids' parents. Yeah.
0: Then, oh, yeah. I it. Gotcha. oh, is this what we're doing?
1: The <laughs> parents are taking revenge <laughs> on people. Okay. Yeah. Well, we didn't know. Nobody told us. So now we're.
0: Right. Uh, but then, like you said, but then and you could have sh- done mom and dad combo. Yeah. You could have brought them both in. Right. But yeah, i kind of like you, this wasn't my favorite of the franchises. I, I was I was much more a fan of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, but once again, the age I was and where those were a little bit more silly. Um, as I was never really big kind of horror guy. I mean, the first one is the one that's really scary. After you know, I, I think by Nightmare on Elm Street uh, three or four, it got really you know campy. So yeah, and Chucky
1: Chucky
0: Child's Play. Uh, yeah, uh, I never uh, saw those the same thing. Yeah, it you know very you know,
1: I mean a little dog can only be. So scary, but it was just more funny. It was similar to, it was similar to, more, the, like, I'm three, up and five, where yeah. you're just waiting on him to say his lie, whatever funny oh, thing yeah, yeah, he's going to yeah. say yeah. as he kills the person. And that's kind of, Chucky kind of had some of that, too.
2: He'd say something funny yeah. as, he, as he, like, killed people. Yeah,
0: and i I um, listen, listen yeah, to, yeah. Definitely a different tone
1: than the Friday the thirteen.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, I listened to another podcast where we were talking about, the, all, they were actually talking about those all those franchises and the sequels, and they talked about why Freddy seemed to resonate so big was because he was the one that spoke. You had Michael Myers and Jason that never spoke. So they were kind of always silent. So then to have a villain that actually or a murderer that actually talked to you kind of up the ante somewhat, where it wasn't just this menacing presence, but he could actually kind of, you know, uh, scare you with some of his dialogue as well. So but then it got Then then they said, but then it became so campy. He became more of a character than a real villain. You know that's a
1: good. That's a good point because, um, like Leatherface
0: and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know mm-hmm. he's not talking, right? And
1: uh, um, yeah, I'm not sure we could go back to a lot of the more the slasher kind of and horror those type of horror films, and that's probably a really common theme mm-hmm. of. Uh, and then all of a sudden, Freddy starts starts talking. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I never realized that before. It's really interesting.
0: <laughs> Your favorite franchise, of course, is Halloween, or at least the first Halloween. I don't know care about the franchise because it's kind of plot hole and timeline, and you know which one is real. Yeah. Uh, but there was but, no Kevin. There was no Kevin Feige uh, pl- uh, plotting <laughs> out the,
1: right. um, the Halloween franchise and the continuity and how we're going to tie it
0: all together. Right. But I, I will say I did recognize whether it's the homage or just the we're going to copy this style because it was it you know it worked so well for John Carpenter's Halloween. But do you did you pick up on that at all? Like the you know some of the homages to Halloween, or did you even notice? Well, I mean, just some of the some of the filming of of um,
1: like from the bad guys from the villain's point of view, right, like if he's right. hiding behind a tree. And, uh, and some of that is, is so terrible too. I mean, literally <laughs> it, as people are walking through the woods, you're hiding behind what's got to be like a four inch wide tree. I mean, there's no right, way right. a person is not seeing someone standing there. They're, they're walking a foot away from that tree. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so some of those things, yeah, certainly, uh, you know, were were very similar. Uh, uh, to that the, um, the, the The sound effect When the You know which, which I think Really from Jaws That when the When the villain Is getting near All yeah. of a sudden The music is going to change or, you right. know, that's coming So Halloween And Friday the 13th Both uh, Utilized that What else was there?
0: I think it was Maybe the point of view Of the You know Of the killer Was like the main one um, That's the one That stands out to me Because you're doing a twist ending, that's probably the smartest way to do it, to not give away anything of, you know, who the killer is, so.
1: Right, right. You
0: kind of have to do it that way, I guess. Yeah. All right, let's uh, talk a little bit about casting. Um, So, a New (laughs) York-based firm headed by Julie Hughes and Barry Moss was hired to find eight young actors to play the camp's staff members. Cunningham admits that he was not looking for quote-unquote great actors, but anyone that was likable and appeared to be a responsible camp counselor. The way Cunningham saw it, the actors would need to look good, read the dialogue somewhat well, and work for cheap. Moss and Hughes were happy to find four actors, Kevin Bacon, Laurie Bartram, Peter Bauer, and Adrian King, who had previously appeared on soap operas. The role of Alice Hardy was set up as an open casting call, which was actually a publicity stunt used to attract more attention to the film. King earned an audition primarily because she was the friend of someone working in Moss and Hugh's office, and Cunningham felt she embodied the qualities of Alice. After she auditioned, Moss recalls Cunningham commenting that they saved the best actors for last. As Cunningham explains, he was looking for people that could behave naturally, and King was able to show that to him. And King was able to show that to him in the audition. With King cast in the role as the lead heroine Alice, Laurie Bartram was hired to play Brenda. Kevin Bacon, Mark Nelson, and Janine Taylor, who had known each other prior to the film, were cast as Jack, Ned, and Marcy, respectively. It is Bacon and Nelson's contention that because the three already knew each other, they already had the specific chemistry the casting director was looking for in the roles of Jack, Ned, and Marcy. Taylor had stated that Hughes and Moss were highly regarded while she was an actress, so when they offered her an audition, she felt that whatever the part... It would be a good opportunity. I thought this was interesting. The part of Bill was given to Harry Crosby, who was the son of Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby. Yeah. All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Mrs. Voorhees. Estelle Parsons was initially asked to portray the film's killer, Mrs. Voorhees, but eventually declined. Her agent cited the film was too violent and did not know what kind of actress would play such a part. Hughes and Moss sent a copy of the script to Betsy Palmer in hopes that she would accept the part. Palmer could not understand why someone would want her for a part in a horror film, as she had previously starred in films such as *Mr. Roberts*, *The Angry Man*, and *The Ten Star*. Palmer only agreed to play the role because she needed to buy a new car, even though she believed the film to be not very good. It is interesting that you know bulk of them were you know uh, played in soap operas and had already had already knew each other. But of course, the one that most people recognize, of course, is Kevin Bacon in this role. Even though this was not his, uh, this wasn't his breakout role. He, you know, he people recognized him. He was in Animal House uh, right before this came out, and then I think he was also in another smaller film. Uh, but of course, his big, big breakout movie was Footloose, uh, which came out in 1984. So,
1: but he has a, uh, he has an iconic
0: uh, death, of course, yes, in this, in this, in this movie, um, uh, which at, is probably the best uh, death. Yeah. In this one. Yeah. Um and I know they they I read some about how they, they set it up with him getting stabbed through the, the neck, through the throat as he mm-hmm. was laying in the in the bed. But uh uh
1: really uh scary scene
0: at mm-hmm. the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh I know we're we're not really talking about favorite scenes, but when, if we were gonna talk about that, that was probably gonna be mine because I thought that was the most that was the only scene that really kind of freak not freaked me out, but I, that's what I didn't see coming. Um, you know, it was, it was a little bit more imaginative as far as like a death scene. Um, I guess after seeing so many other, other ones over the years, but, um, but yeah, that was pretty freaky. Shows you how strong Mr. Voorhees was. <laughs> yeah.
1: Take some strength to push that uh, arrow through the back of somebody's throat all the way through. Yeah. Uh, so quickly like
0: that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the filming. So. The film was shot in and around the townships of Hardwick, Blairstown, and Hope in Warren County, New Jersey in September of 1979. So it was filmed in the fall. So that's why you had some of that foliage, as we said earlier. The camp scenes were shot on a working Boy Scout camp called Camp Noby Bosco, and try to say that fast four times, which is located in Hardwick. The camp is still standing and still (laughs) operates as a summer camp. The cinematography in the film employs recurrent point-of-view shots from the perspective of the villain, which we talked about as well. Savini was hired to design the film's special effects based upon his work in George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead from 1978. Savini's design contributions included crafting the effects of Marcy's axe wound to the face, the arrow penetrating Jack's throat, and Mrs. Voorhees' decapitation by the machete. During the filming of the fight sequences between King and Palmer's characters, Palmer suggested rehearsing the scene based on her theater training. Uh, She said to Adrian that, that night, why don't we rehearse this scene? I have to slap you because on stage, when you slap somebody, you slap them. While rehearsing, Palmer slapped King in the face and she began crying. She collapsed to the floor, crying, Sean Cunningham, she hit me. And he said, well, of course she hit you. You were rehearsing the scene. She said, no, 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 Betsy, we don't hit people in the movies. We miss them. So, uh, pretty funny. So, yeah, I, I I read that part uh, about that. Thought, yeah, that's that's hilarious. The difference between how you rehearse a scene in the theater versus uh, on a movie set. That's, right, that's pretty good. I will say, in, in in the brief history I've had in in you know local community theater, we don't slap. any <laughs> community theater, we 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 miss. So we have we have <laughs> ways of doing that without actually hurting anybody. So, but back in the eighties, who knew? Maybe they just went for it. So. Uh, All right, so let's talk a little bit about the music. Uh, Harry Manfredini began working on the musical score. The decision was made to only play music when the killer was actually present as to not manipulate the audience. Manfredini pointed out the lack of music for certain scenes. He said there's a scene where one of the girls is setting up the archery area. One of the guys shoots an arrow into the target and just misses her. It's a huge scare, but if you notice, there's no music. That was a choice. Manfredini also noted that when something was going to happen, the music would cut off so the audience would relax a bit and the scare would be that much more effective. And because the killer, Mrs. Voorhees, appears on screen only during the final scenes of the film, Manfredini had the job of creating a score that would represent the killer in her absence. Manfredini borrows from the 1975 film Jaws, where the shark is likewise not seen for the majority of the film, but the motif created by John Williams cued the audience to the shark's invisible menace. Uh, Sean Cunningham sought a chorus, but the budget would not allow it. While listening to a piece of music, which contained a chorus with, quote-unquote, striking pronunciations, Manfredini was inspired to recreate a similar sound. that he, he came up with the sound, from the final reel when Mrs. Voorhees arrives and is reciting Killer Mommy. The K-I comes from Kill, and the M-A from Mommy. To achieve the unique sound he wanted for the film, Manfredini spoke the two words harshly, distinctly, and rhythmically into a microphone and ran them into an echo reverberation machine. Manfredini finished the original score after a couple of weeks and then recorded the score at a friend's basement. Manfredini says, everybody thinks it's cha-cha-cha like cha-cha-cha, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I never I never heard the cha-cha-cha. I always heard it was ma-ma-ma.
1: So we used to conversations that you know just
0: in school and things about right. uh what we used to do I, people never
1: made the connection at least i don't remember anyone making the connection with kill 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 and ma 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 right people were people were just saying like ki, 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 like key,
0: key. right
1: it was like ki, ki, ka 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 right um but um no one at least no one that i knew or remember made the connection or at least no one was was kind of buying it
0: Right. But uh, it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think now you probably you know. now knowing what it is, you can probably hear it a little clearer and then even sure. even back then, I'm sure it wasn't on on an old VHS coming through your TV speaker probably isn't going to be real crystal clear either. So um but yeah, I mean I remember kids doing that on the playground, you know, or trying to scare you or whatever, and I've heard many variations of that over the years, so uh but it is funny. So, uh, a bidding war over distribution rights to the film ensued in 1980 between Paramount Pictures, Warner Brothers, and United Artists. Paramount executive Frank Mancuso Sr. recalled, The minute we saw Friday the 13th, we knew we had a hit. Paramount ultimately purchased domestic distribution rights for Friday the 13th for $1.5 million. Based on the success of recently released horror films such as Halloween and the low budget of the film, the studio deemed it a low-risk release in terms of profitability. It was the first independent slasher film to be acquired by a major motion picture studio. Paramount spent approximately $500,000 in advertisement and an additional 500000 when the film began performing well at the box office. You know, I, I, it did kind of ride the coattails of Halloween, I'm sure. Yeah, I think anything from that uh,
1: time period. I did see uh, one thing about the box office that was kind of interesting to me where it made basically made 40 million domestically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a total of about 15 million screens. So yeah. Think about that. 15 million screens, <laughs> 40 million, you know, that's like two fifty a movie, <laughs> 1980, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, which is why when, when, when you see the, you know, like the greatest grossing movies, they always adjust for inflation. Oh yeah. Uh, current yeah. dollars. And yeah. Things definitely. of that nature. Cause, uh, uh um, but uh, yeah, two fifty to uh, see Friday the
0: thirteenth. <laughs> yeah. And that was big money back then.
1: It was the highest it was the eighteenth
0: highest grossing film that year. Oh yeah. So eighteenth, pretty good. Yeah. And that's with The Shining and The Fog, I know it was released that year as well.
1: So other horror movies.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, well let's talk a little bit about favorite scenes. Any in this one or iconic oh, scenes? Well, so. Oh, I have a favorite scene. Absolutely. <laughs> I already know. You know what my favorite scene is? I it's a police officer riding up on the motorcycle <laughs> encountering our
1: group of uh, of uh, counselors, including Kevin Bacon, right. who are doing some work around the camp to get ready. And the officer jumps off the motorcycle and just jumps right into this weird conversation about marijuana. Yep. Yeah. And it's straight out of like a 1980s after school special where he's what do you know
2: you
1: it you eat Gas? <laughs> you know what it is and uh, you're just like man this is just terrible yeah. yeah terrible dialogue and uh that is by far my funniest my favorite scene which i don't know which probably really says a lot about the quality of the movie that it is a horror movie and the, my favorite scene is a Scene
0: that's funny and when was not supposed to be funny, <laughs> right? right. Um, and then, other than
1: that, the scene that that I mean, as a child, I, I don't remember the police officer scene, but as a child watching this, the 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 scene that always stood out was the beheading of yeah. Mrs. Voorhees. Yeah, that yeah. Um, for one thing, the villain is a middle aged woman, in mm-hmm. a bulky sweater, and the uh, second thing is the you know your protagonist is also a uh, teenage girl who who goes to get the machete right and then comes sprinting back i mean she's not just like backing up and this woman that's coming towards her she's right. like oh no i'm gonna go over here and get this machete mm-hmm. and then i'm gonna sprint to you and kill you that's enough <laughs> out of you yeah and uh um that's a pretty uh, uh memorable uh scene for me the kevin bacon death was was one that i remember and i remember talking about that with friends did you see where the arrow came mm-hmm. to his throat yeah. Um, and then of course the decaying corpse of the I don't know, 20, 30 year old dead Jason who right. was still an eight year old boy. Which is also a continuity problem for Friday thirteen. Yeah. He's been dead all these years if he hasn't aged and all right. of a sudden in the next movie he's yeah, a grown he's man twenty four years. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once <laughs> he came out of the water he started to age just very rapidly. Yeah. Well, so,
1: that's a good way of looking at it. The <laughs> air.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. There you go. And he, he was so pruny from being in the water for so long. He just oh. he had to wait to unprune. There you go. That's so. right. Your mother always told you if you sat in the bath for long, you, know,
1: <laughs> you can get, get all pruny. And uh, Jason Voorhees was a prime example of
0: that. Uh, yeah. Um, well, let me before I get to my favorite scene, I, I saw this, and of course I, I thought of you, knowing that your favorite scene was the uh, the, the police officer. So. Screenwriter Victor Miller's one big problem with the film, as mentioned in interviews in the book Crystal Lake Memories and the documentary His Name Was Jason, is the motorcycle patrolman who shows up roughly midway through the film. The quote-unquote bumbling lame older cop, Officer Ford, is not in Miller's original draft or his four rewrites of the screenplay. The character was added in an uncredited rewrite by screenwriter Ron Kurtz, who went on to write Friday the 13th Part 2. Miller's objection is due to wanting Camp Crystal Lake to be a very rural and isolated location cut off from the main roads. For Miller, having the teens, early 20-somethings, be outside the help of formal authority was to give the audience the feeling that no one could come and save them. Aside from this, he states he has no other major concerns or issues with the finished film. So, so interesting that he wanted, he didn't like that, not because it was a big after-school special segment, but that, because the cop was e- had, could get there pretty easily, or just have to be driving by, uh, it made it seem like they weren't as far away from civilization as he wanted them to be. So, okay, well he can say that if he wants to. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it definitely had that you know anti drug uh, moment. But uh, as far like the favorite scenes, I can't really say I have a favorite scene. But like I said the iconic scene for me was the was Kevin Bacon's death on the bed with the arrow coming through his neck. Uh, that was pretty freaky. So, but yeah, looking back, like watching it again and knowing the the um, or watching it, knowing the twist ending. But really, for me, and the re- having the rewatchability of it, to me, it really doesn't get exciting until the end. I mean, it's a lot of build up, you know, but once, you know, it's just down to Alice and she discovers the bodies. And then, you know, Mrs. Voorhees reveals herself and gives the whole villain speech at the end. That's really when it kind of got exciting for me. So I really enjoyed that kind of dynamic. And it was something different. Once again, you know, like, as you said before, having the killer be a middle-aged woman uh, in a large fisherman sweater from Massachusetts, uh, like she was working on the docks and pulling up lobsters. um, And then, you know, against Alice, you know, kind of not necessarily your damsel in distress as as most with some of the other girls obviously were in the in the film. Um, that was a pretty good standoff and a good kind of battle. Uh, but the decapitation was unexpected. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, we're, that's not, especially in today's movies, you don't see that quite as frequently as how you kill the other person. Um, it's right. stab in the heart, but once again, not thinking about making the sequel, of course you're going to decapitate because you can't bring that one back from the dead, uh, you know, for, for later installments, so. Yeah, I don't think Betsy Palmer was coming back anyway. No. But, know. um, and they, and you're right. The movie it kind of takes a long way to get to that beat of of the depths
1: at the camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also spend time earlier in the movie, kind of doing a little bit of misdirection, make you think is it the weird
2: mm-hmm, guy from town? Mm-hmm. Uh, is
1: right. it the guy that's running the camp? Yeah, like you yeah, yeah, With, with uh, like a, a little mm-hmm. bit of a clue, a little bit of who done it? Uh, yeah, who
0: could yeah. this be? Um, yeah. I thought that was, I thought that was well done because it did give you early on kind of, okay, maybe the, you know once again what going back and watching it now we know who it is, but as as a first time watch back in 1980, those are some pretty good red herrings they threw in there to kind of throw you off the scent. So, a few interesting uh, tidbits tidbits from the other scenes. Uh, the scene with the snake uh, in the camp was not in the original script. It was actually an idea from Tom Savini after an experience of his own cabin during filming the snake in the scene was real including its on-screen death so they do give you that kind of long shot of i can't remember which which uh camp counselor was that killed the machete but he kind of stands there and holds the machete a little bit long enough for you to kind of say hmm could he be the one yeah yeah, that's big big that's right yeah because he's he doesn't
1: have as many lines he's kind of a little bit more in the background the stuff so a little bit more yeah. standoffish and so again I think that was kind of by design like you said it could it be him but I remember right when that when that scene happened I remember um you know watching it and mm-hmm. I, I, I told Denise I said they really killed that snake. Yeah you can't get oh, yeah. that in
0: 2020 no. the,
1: the, the, <laughs> the snake apologists would be right. so upset that you killed the snake but they they killed that poor little black snake.
0: Uh so we talked about Kevin Bacon's death scene. Kind of interesting how they had to film that so he actually had to crouch under the bed and insert his head through a hole in the mattress. Then a latex neck and chest appliance were attached to give to the appearance that he was actually laying down. Getting the setup right took several hours and Bacon had to stay in that uncomfortable position the entire time. For the final bloody moment, Tom Savini, also under the bed, <laughs> would plunge the arrow up and through the fake neck while his assistant, also under the bed, that's a pretty big bed, operated a pump that would make the blood flow up through the appliance. To further complicate things, the crew needed someone to stand in for the killer's hand as it held Bacon's head down, and they settled on still photographer Richard Fury. So after several hours of setup, the latex building and planning, it was finally time to shoot the scene, and when the moment of truth came, the hose for the blood pump disconnected. (laughs) <laughs> Knowing that he basically only had one take, otherwise I'd have to build a new latex appliance and set everything up again. Tasso in Stravizkis grabbed the hose and blew into it until blood flowed out, saving the scene. He said, I had to think quickly, so I just grabbed the hose and blew like crazy, which thankfully caused a serendipitous ar- arterial blood spray. The blood didn't taste that bad either, he said. But I also read that uh, if you notice, there's bubbles, like it's the only scene where the blood actually look has air bubbles in it, and they said that uh, came from him having to blow through the tube uh, for it to work that way. So makes perfect sense. Yeah, but that wasn't. I'm sure that was uncomfortable. Like you had Kevin uh, Kevin Bacon under the bed, Salvini, his assistant. That's three people under that bed having to make that whole that whole thing work. So for a scene that basically lasts. What, less than a minute, maybe? <laughs> so Yeah, that had to be an awkward
1: position for Bacon because he's got he's gotta sit there with his head
0: tilted back. Yeah.
1: Back. So his body is
0: somewhat upward, but his mm-hmm. head is back. The original plan was for Alice to be a recurring hero in the series, continually facing off against Jason again and again in sequel after sequel, kind of like Laurie Strode was the reoccurring hero in the Halloween series. But as Jason's sister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But after Adrian King was stalked by a Friday the Thirteenth fan during the release of the original film, she said she wanted out, so her character was killed off at the beginning of the sequel. So, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. She was actually that was a pretty big. I saw a couple of stories about that how she was stalked and and really feared for her life um, after the movie came out. So another interesting wow. uh, correlation between Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth. Thought you'd get a kick out of this one. There is a township named Voorhees, New Jersey, which is about eight miles away from Haddonfield, New Jersey, which was the inspiration (laughs) for the fictional town where the movie Halloween took place. The documentary Halloween 25 Years of Terror, which came out in 2006, shows a picture of a road sign that lists Voorhees right under Haddonfield. The township was named for Foster McGowan Voorhees, the governor of New Jersey, from 1899 to 1902, The surname Voorhees is of Dutch heritage, which is also a common family in New Jersey. So
1: that is hilarious that there's a connection there.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. My name is Laramie Wells, and I host a podcast called Moving Panels. On Moving Panels, we discuss movies and television shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and a wide range of guest hosts as we discuss the hits like Logan and The Dark Knight as well as clear misses like X-Men Origins, Wolverine, and Green Lantern. New episodes drop every other Friday and you can find us wherever you download your podcasts. So join us for moving panels and we'll see you on the other side of the page.
0: Last little trivia to and then we're going to jump into the box office. Gene Siskel... A famous critic Hated the movie so much He actually gave away The ending In his review He and Roger Ebert Also slammed in A special edition Of Siskel and Ebert Called The War on Women Which focused on Misogynistic slasher movies All of this Just boosted The ticket sales
1: Yeah I read about his review
0: Yeah That's pretty ruthless That you're gonna give away The ending on In your reviews Like that's That's cold blooded Right there <laughs> Yeah
1: the uh, and that can backfire on you because uh, if that studio decides, oh okay, well we won't let you review any of these other pictures that we got coming out. There. Exactly. But what are you going to do about
0: that? Yeah, but I mean, you're not expecting. Mean, I don't know if too many horror movies, especially slasher horror movies, that are going to be loved by critics anyway. So that I mean, that kind of came with the territory. So. All right, let's talk a little bit about critical reception. So, currently on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a, it's sixty four percent on the tomato meter with a sixty one audience score, and on IMDb, it's six point five out of ten, which is actually the same as Halloween Two, which we just did a couple weeks ago, with a twenty two on Metacritic. So, where do you fall on that one? Are you a twenty two or a sixty <sighs> one? Probably split the difference.
1: Probably a forty. <laughs> uh, right. I mean, when my daughter started to get into horror movies, uh, the original Friday the Thirteenth was one of the ones that I told her that she had to watch. Right. From, from the era when she went back, the original Halloween, the first Nightmare on the Street, Friday the Thirteenth, yeah, yeah, uh, the, the Shining, um, The Exorcist. You know, sort of. You want to watch, you know, the you know some of the classic horror movies. You know, Psycho. Um, to you know go back and watch those. So it's definitely, cause it's part of a genre. I mean, it's, it's such a huge franchise. Yeah. With yeah. So many different films, which by the way, I read and just shocked by this, that still the original Friday the 13th is the highest grossing of the Friday. Other than the, um, Jason meets Freddy, which is a crossover between right, two different franchises, right. but on a Jason standalone or Friday the 13th standalone movie, the original is still the, hmm. the, the high, highest uh, grossing, which is, which is crazy. Yeah. But, um, uh so, you know, n- not a terrible not like, oh my gosh, please never watch this <laughs> um uh you know, kind of movie. But it's definitely probably one once you watch once. Yeah. Uh that's enough. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I think once again I think it, it it's somewhat setting up the story even though it gets kind of ridiculous how it goes from the first one to the second one, but you get a little bit of the I guess a backstory, um but yeah, I don't it it's still and once again, it's not great I don't think it really gets going until, you know, pretty much the last thirty minutes of the movie. Uh, and it's not very long either. So I mean the, the 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 last third of the movie is where it really kinda gets exciting, I guess, for me. So uh, maybe I would just skip to the end <laughs> and watch the final and then go <laughs> from there. So uh instead of sending the beginning.
1: Then you may miss my motorcycle police officer scene, and, and we don't we don't want that to happen. Yeah, um, I, w- I will say this more forty percent. I think for me, but I think part of that is also some nostalgia because I'll tell right. you, like with Sydney, when when my daughter watched this mm-hmm. as a like a 17, 18 year old, that she probably would definitely put this in more like the twenty percent. was yeah, just like yeah. okay, that was not good. <laughs> um, yeah, like the... memories of being scared as a child, right. Watching it, right. and, and It's a little bit different to you.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely, we, we rate a lot of these by the nostalgic factor, anyway. Um, and once again, I go by rewatch rewatchability, so it's not going to rank very high for me because, like I said, it's not going to be one that I'm going to watch. You know, this isn't one I'm going to put in every Halloween or you know maybe every Friday the Thirteenth, which doesn't happen every year like a holiday. But um, but yeah, it I, I I enjoyed Halloween better. I enjoyed A Nightmare on Elm Street more. So, uh it would be if I had to rank those 3, it would definitely come in 3rd as far as like original, you know, what started a franchise. So. All right. Yeah, I agree. All right, as you mentioned earlier, Friday the 13th opened theatrically on May 9th, 1980 across the United States, ultimately expanding its release to 1,127 theaters. It earned $5 million in its opening weekend before finishing domestically at just under $40,000 with a total of 14 14 million I'm sorry to say 39,000 39 million dollars with a total of 14 million admissions it was the 18th highest grossing film that year facing competition from other high profile horror releases as you mentioned such as The Shining, Dress to Kill, The Fog and Prom Night uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's second slasher film after Halloween uh, the worldwide gross for the film was 59 million of the 17 films distributed by Paramount in 1980, only one movie returned more profits than Friday the 13th. Any guesses? This is tough. I mean, there's no way you're gonna get it. So, but it's okay. but it's Airplane made more money, oh. <laughs> which yeah. is the which is the exact polar opposite of what you'd want from Halloween. <laughs> so, uh, our last little bit. Friday the 13th was released internationally, which was unusual for an independent film with. At the time, no well recognized or bankable actors aside from well known television and movie actress Betsy Palmer. The film would take in approximately 20 million in international box office receipts, not factoring in international sales or the crossover film with The Nightmare on Elm Street's Freddy Krueger. The original Friday the 13th is the highest grossing film of the franchise, as Ron mentioned earlier as well. So that's what we got. We talked about Friday the 13th. On Friday the 13th Which is when this episode Is going to drop So um, I guess the only last Quick question Like we did with Halloween You got any weird things That's ever happened to you On Friday the 13th Are you a superstitious person At all With the Friday the 13th Black cats And all that hoopla
1: I am one of the Most unsuperstitious <laughs> People you'll Ever meet in your life Yeah None right. of that stuff Right Bothers me Or means anything to me When I was the kid I would step on the
0: crack I wasn't worried about Breaking my mother's back <laughs> You walk, uh, the, I would you walk, walk I under walk under ladders, yeah. Yeah, I
1: don't, I, I
0: don't care. Yeah, so uh, I will say, like what I remember more than this movie, and maybe one day we'll get to it much later down the road. But did you ever see the parody Saturday the Fourteenth?
1: Oh, I think I did, but that's that's yeah, I couldn't really remember anything about yeah, that.
0: Yeah, I remember watching, I remember seeing that one on cable as a kid way before I saw these movies, but uh, but yeah. That was a fun one, so. All right, Ron, thanks so much for being a part of this one. I look forward to our, uh, our next episode that we'll get to uh, discuss again, which I think is going to be uh, on Christmas. I think their next one is going to be Christmas Story in December, so. Oh,
1: uh, well, then if that's the case, then I'm greatly looking forward
0: to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did, we've done two horror movies back-to-back, so I'm looking forward to some lighter Christmas fare as we jump into the holiday season so uh our next episode i think laramie wells comes back and we're going to talk about planes trains and automobiles which ron has never seen is that correct i have never seen all right so that's your assignment you've got to watch it before (laughs) the next episode so that you can uh and even if you just just send me a text and give me some kind of you know your 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 initial thoughts on it and uh we'll try to fit that into the episode i think that'll be that'll be Uh fun to do
1: will do so and i'm off for the next five days oh so, yeah so i'll sometime in those next five days i'll i'll, I'll
0: complete my homework as i'm <laughs> right well that's going to do it for this episode once again thanks for joining me ron we'll see you guys next time Thanks. Tom. thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s flick flashback podcast if you'd like to continue the conversation we have a few ways for you to do just that one way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message to the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. If you do leave us a message, we may just use it in an upcoming mini episode. Another way to reach us is through the new 80s flick flashback podcast Facebook page, as well as our Movie Views Instagram. Also, be on the lookout for our next mini episode. Each mini episode offers some fun segments about the previous full episode and we'll also introduce the next 80s flick we'll be watching and covering in the next episode. If you're listening to us on Apple podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating, leave us a stellar written review and go ahead and hit that subscribe button. So you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes, no matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into this episode. That's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s flick flashback.